the lynx is called this because he is a kind of wolf. The brute is distinguished by spots on the back like a pard, but he looks like a wolf. They say that his urine hardens into a precious stone called ligurius, and it is established that the lynxes themselves realize this by by the following fact. When they have pissed the liquid, they cover it up in the sand as much as they can. They do this from a certain constitutional meanness for fear that the piss should be useful as an ornament to the human race. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. Hello, I'm Brigitte Bootner. <laughs> This is real fantastic beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. So Alexa. So today we have a special episode on real fantastic stones, Ian. (laughs) Stones, they're not alive, are they? Or are they? Well, our guest... Our guest may be able to uh, fill you in on that. Our guest is Brigitte Butner. She is a professor of art history at Smith College in Massachusetts. She's originally from Switzerland. She earned her PhD in Paris. um, And she has worked extensively on, I guess I would call it luxury culture in the later Middle Ages. And most recently, her attention has turned to uh, precious materials in a book that came out uh, quite recently from Penn State Press called "The Mineral and the Visual: Precious Stones in Secular Medieval Culture." So, welcome, Brigitte. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you, Alexa. Thank you, Ian. It's very exciting for me to be joining a Fantastic Beast uh, podcast. It's true that uh, my uh, area where I dig around tend to be more in earthy matters and minerals, uh, but I actually have taught uh, beasts, fantastic and otherwise, uh, a number of time in my classes. So it's material that is uh, also very uh, dear uh, to my heart. So All thank right. you. <laughs> Great. So, so yeah, I should probably lead off with that. This, you know, we got to get this basic question out of the way for, for most of us, I think that the distinction between living and non-living is pretty fundamental and kind of unquestioned. And, you know, the searches for like life on other planets presume that stones and rocks and things are not alive. But I think, your work in some ways suggests that the distinction between living and non-living might not have always been so fundamental. And so I wonder if you could like tell us a little bit about how the medieval or early modern world could imagine non-living things as being alive. Right. Uh, so that's obviously a, it's a huge question. <laughs> the distinction between uh, what is animate and inanimate between the living and between matter living and matter dead, 
uh, between matter organic and inorganic are essentially all modern distinctions. Um, you know, there are antecedents of it for sure, but they really don't become a kind of established fact until quite late, until the late 18th century, at which point there is really this kind of radical chasm between, again, you know, animate, inanimate, organic, inorganic. So before that time in the Middle Ages, well, in, in ancient times, in the Middle Ages and in early modern times, um, those categories really have to be rethought and just don't work in that same uh, way, which is why, you know, you find all sorts of permutations where humans can become objects, uh, as in relics, for example, or uh, conversely, uh, you have to us inert matter that actually is endowed uh, with life. Now, to be clear, the animation of stones is definitely, you know, present uh, in uh, many ways. And I, I'd like to maybe, you know, give some other examples, but also come back to the links. Uh, but uh, we are in a Christian environment, uh, so there was also a very clear concept of, you know, animation as in and sold, as opposed to things devoid of soul, uh, life properly uh, speaking. And in that sense, there was a division between, uh, say, uh, what is of the uh, mineral realm and what would be of the animal uh, realm. Um, So that's the Christian uh, part and understanding. So stones do not have a soul. Uh, That would be heretical. (laughs) So they are not really animate in the full sense of the Christian understanding of that, right? Nonetheless, they do have some sort of, if not a soul, a pseudo, a crypto kind of aliveness. There is some, a few uh, medieval thinkers, Albert the Great uh, is probably uh, the most interesting example who try to think ab- about what that aliveness of stones exactly is. Uh, but I think, you know, the general uh, sort of idea we can go by is that there is animation, uh, but it is not the animation of living uh, beings because stones do not have a soul. That's for sure. Um, and you probably and your listeners know that very well, better than I do. There is a lot of debate, actually, between people who think about animals. Uh, You know, if animals have souls, and if so, what kind of soul? Is it different from human soul, etc.? But soulless does not mean dead uh, either or inert either. I think the best way to think about it, sort of with modern frameworks, is to think of agency. It may be, you know, inert matter, soulless matter, but it is matter that is infused with agency. But just to get back to the link story, the little link story with which I started, you see, that's a beautiful example. So the links supposed to be a kind of cross between a wolf and a part. So already, you know, a porousness here between category or a different approach to category. 
categorical distinction. Well, it pisses a liquid, it's urine, a vile liquid in many ways, right? But uh, through a kind of process of crystallization and fermentation, that urine turns one into a hard thing and two into a very precious uh, thing. This link stone, this ligurius, is included in all bestiaries. It is included in books of stones, the lapidaries, but in all sorts of other literature. It was a very, very popular uh, stone in the medieval imagination, and perhaps because it brings these opposites uh, together, animal, mineral, vile, precious, uh, liquid, solid, uh, you know, and again, kind of meshes them in a way that binary thinking uh, would be uncomfortable with. But I think that medieval thinking is much more used to actually. I'm wondering, were there examples of these lynx stones, these like Goriuses, I suppose? Were there people who claimed to own them or objects that were described as incorporating these stones? So the lynx stone is mentioned in one of the earliest medieval epic, chivalric epic. Uh, It was written in Latin uh, in the early 11th century in Germany. It's called Rodlieb. At the beginning, uh, the author takes us to a courtly hall with a feast, a banquet, and there's all sorts of guests that are coming and bringing fancy gifts, uh, horses, gold, silver, all sorts of different uh, fancy uh, things, and a link stone with its ligurias. But the poet, and that's really what is remarkable here, uh, takes then a long detour, uh, some 30 verses uh, long, to detail the process of forcing the transformation, the transmutation of urine into stone. So the, a kind of artificial process of crystallization. And it's kind of quite cool a description because essentially he says this writer you know take a lynx chain it into a barrel stretch out its leg uh, fasten them to nails and then give it to drink uh, sweet but very strong wine uh, so as to force it to piss through a hole and then you can collect you can harvest uh, that liquid And then there is another complicated process to actually bring it to fermentation. And the author even (laughs) says, you know, and if the animal refuses to cooperate, which is also, you know, what I read a little bit in the excerpt, that it it sort of is sneaky. It doesn't want humans to discover the precious stone. So it buries its waste, which, of course, is what uh, cats do. But here in the Rudoglied, in this German uh, poem, it says that, okay, the, 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 Lynx doesn't want to piss. Well, guess what happens after a few of these slug of wines? It will just explode. And then you can collect the pouch with the urine. And eventually, you know, uh, you will get uh, this uh, beautiful stone. And it concludes uh, by saying that the stone is so beautiful that it either ends on rings worn by queens or if it's particularly large on a, on a royal crown. It is one of the stones that is mentioned in the Bible also. Uh, so we think because uh, it is described as attracting uh, small bits of straws and shavings of woods and things like that, that in fact it's just amber. 
Uh, it also has a kind of, you know, yellowish, uh, orangey color. So it would indicate it's a kind of very elaborate uh, sort of mythologizing of, you know, two banal fact, amber and cats bury their waste. <laughs> uh, but that's how medieval thinking likes to proceed, right, to make, uh, to turn banal physical facts into marvelous, you know, fiction. Do they also have amber or is it is it just... They, you know, they they didn't recognize amber as a as a gem, so that any amber that turns up, they're like, oh, another yet another link stone. They did actually, and Pliny, whom I'm sure uh, you must have mentioned, another uh, podcast, is the kind of foundation, you know, for a lot of scientific uh, knowledge in the Middle Ages, including for lapidary knowledge. He actually makes goes to great length to kind of disentangle their other stones that also enter. They're all variants of amber in the end, but you know, and he says the link story is nonsense. <laughs> you know, amber is. Is is a sap of uh, of trees in the Baltic uh, fossilized, which he was basically right about. Oh, the other thing that I me- that I forgot to mention about the linkstone, and that's really quite exceptional, and would prove that people, you know, uh, really believed in its existence. It does appear in some inventory, so that's to answer Alexa's question. But exceptionally, also, it is mentioned amongst the very few what I like to think of as mineral marvels uh, in some of the medieval world maps, the Mappa Mundis, in particular the Hereform map, which includes uh, sort of close to the Black Sea, actually, uh, a uh, vignette of a stone-pissing lynx. Uh, so, and again, with the caption, you know. So again, it was really, you know, was just a kind of very trending stone and animal for sure. Are there other similar stones that have a kind of um, animal origin? Yeah, so there are a lot actually. Um, so the link stone is unusual because it's a hardened secretion. I think that's the only one that I know of. So you have, say, if we think of amber, you have a number of plants um, that, of which the sap, uh, you know, hardens also into stone. But for animals, I think it's the only one. What we do have actually uh, a lot of is... Um, animal bodies that produce stones either inside or on the surface of their uh of their skin of their of their fur of their scales whatever feathers and actually it concerns all orders of animals so we have birds uh, who can produce stones we have land animals what we would call mammals uh, we have reptiles, we have fish, so it really kind of, you know, it's a very uh, mm-hmm. um, fertile sort of terrain uh, for the generation, for the manufacture of uh, stones. Um, I can give you a few specific examples, maybe, that could be interesting. So I know you had a, an episode on dragons, and I think the stone maybe was mentioned as well. So that's another favorite, definitely, the dragon stone or dracontitis, and again, in various uh, spellings. Um, so in this case, uh, for most uh, authors, it was found on the forehead of the dragon. Sometimes they're found uh, in 
um, in their eyes. And just actually a little bit like the link stone, they're often um, the stories that are told about these animals and these um, animal creating, uh, I mean, these stone creating animals, um, is that getting at the stone is not easy. It makes it difficult. Humans really have to kind of work at it. And that, I think, is a way to really implicitly um, sort of uh, gesture towards the fact that these are precious stones. They require work, uh, just as, you know, mining requires work. In this case, you have to uh, sort of, you know, be patient with the, with the link stone or with the dragon. You have to induce them into uh, a kind of dream-like stupor. And you do that either by giving them some sort of drugs, if you manage to get close <laughs> to the beasts. I mean, these are monstrous serpents, right? So it's not an easy task. Uh, or by incantation. Uh, so you kind of, you know, read a spell at the entrance of the cave uh, where um, they dwell um, so as to make um, the dragons uh, fall asleep, asleep and then you can approach it and pry uh, the press precious uh, gems from uh, their bodies. And the texts are quite insistent uh, that the animals actually have to be alive because if you kill them by accident, again, as a way to punish human acquisitiveness, they will yield a soft, meaning a worthless stone. There are uh, all sorts of amphibians that are very good stone producing animals. So there's a whole range. Uh, one of the most popular uh, stones um, was called, actually, it had a number of names, but Buffonitis, Borax, essentially translating to uh, toad uh, stones. And that is one of those stones that we find in bestiaries and lapidaries, but also in inventories. And one of the reasons why we find them in royal inventories is that uh, the to toadstone was actually like the dragon stone, uh, supposed to be a very good at detecting poisons or being even an antitoxic uh, kind of substance. Probably the toadstone was a fossil, in fact, because some texts describe it uh, as bearing the imprint of a toad on it. So that would, you know, uh, sort of lead us to believe that they were actually fossils. Um, this is a little bit of a cottage industry uh, to you know, try to name the stones that appear in medieval lapidary and give it a more modern equivalent. And sometimes it's obvious, you know, the, well, actually, what is obvious? Well, the emerald is the emerald, the ruby is the ruby. But, you know, when you get into toadstones and dragonstones, obviously it becomes a little trickier. What are dragonstones then? The dragonstone is always described as being very uh, shiny, and huh? it, but that starts a little bit later on. But from the 12th century onward, uh, it is often likened to a carbuncle. Now, a <laughs> carbuncle is a shiny red stone. So think ruby, think um, you know carnelian, things like that, but, but mostly ruby. The lore of dragons. The whole lore of dragons goes back, way, way back uh, to ancient Indian lore. That's where that whole thing originates. And Indian mythology has a lot of jewel-bearing animals, including 
hunting uh, dragons. And the ruby, too, was imported from India. So you see, it's all this kind of conglomerate, you know, of stories and actual uh, stones. Well, we, we noticed it even in the, the Far East, right, that the dragon the, has uh, the Pearl of Wisdom often in its claws, uh, which, you know, seems like a similar uh, kind of assignation, but it also attributes to the stone itself things that we would call either agency or at least, you know, connected with, with animality, right? Like that idea of knowledge or, you know, power in some way. Right. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that, the powers of stones and Ooh. what really makes uh, the preciousness and the agency of stones. Uh, because as you were just, um, you know, pointing out, uh, and it's, 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 that's another discovery I really was kind of new to me, um, is how much of this mineral knowledge is a shared knowledge and how in many many different culture there was this assumption that stones are again sort of endowed with a crypto life uh, but that explains why they can do things right if they were really dead stuff they couldn't do anything I mean they could mean they could whatever but they couldn't do things well, that's emphatically not the case um, in medieval lapidary knowledge. And again, that's a knowledge that we find across cultures and many, many different uh, cultures. Um, sometimes, you know, they're just common stones, common rocks. Sometimes they're precious stones. It doesn't really matter. But this this sense that the mineral, again, is, is, is not inert, dead matter that you can just, you know, kick with your feet and then it will go away. Uh, and they're very, very precious. Present and often they're very powerfully uh, present. One of the reasons why in the old world uh, those ideas are shared is that there is actually a shared history. So the lore, lore I mean the lore, sorry, about uh, the powers of uh, stones and their aliveness. Uh, goes back again to very ancient ideas of the fertility of earth, the fecundity of mines that are able to generate and regenerate uh, themselves. Um, so we're talking about ancient Near Eastern knowledge. We're talking about um, uh, ancient Indian knowledge. We're talking about pharaonic Egyptian knowledge. And all this kind of percolates together eventually in Hellenistic culture uh, when we have the first textual writing down of both lapidary and actually also the bestiary. And from there, it then branches out again, both east and west. Um, and again, this is something really very surprising. You read, say, a lapidary composed in the 12th, 11th century in the Latin West, one in Byzantium in the 6th century, in the Islamic world, uh, in the 12th century, in the Persian world, including in China in the 17th and 18th. And you read essentially the same stories. Not at all, you know, just um, a Western European medieval conception, but again, a very uh, broadly distributed conception. And again, it's a little bit surprising because on the face of it, it would seem to fly, in, you know, against Christian sort of understandings. 
But the powers uh, that uh, come with uh, precious stones is actually, as far as lapidary understanding is concerned, and scientific understanding more broadly, uh, what is the very definition of their preciousness? So in other words, if you have a rock that doesn't have agency, that doesn't produce some effect, it no longer is a precious stone. So that's a kind of really interesting, different approach uh, to uh, preciousness. So what do we mean by um, agency and by powers? Um, precious stones in that understanding are stones that can affect uh, things and they can affect things on humans, especially it's an anthropocentric kind of reasoning, but they can affect things on animals too and on the environment. So, for example, coral uh, was very much hailed as a stone that could improve the yield of fields, that was good for protecting houses from thunderstorms and lightning, uh, that would uh, make olives uh, better. <laughs> it's a Mediterranean <laughs> kind of assumption. Yummier olives if you put a little bit of coral there. Um, so you see, so the, the, the range of intervention of stones really has kind of no limits. It's very, very broad. And what they do is likewise incredibly variegated, uh, you know, uh, manifold. So there isn't basically a type of intervention that is beyond the capacity of stones. Now, the majority, majority of those, the powers, they were called virtues uh, or virtutes in the plural, uh, which we just translate by virtues, but not moral virtues, physical virtues. So the majority of them, the bulk was medical, medicinal, so they can heal all sorts of diseases that you can think of. Uh, so, for example, the link stone, well, what's your guess? What, what could the link stone be good uh, for, you know, in terms of therapeutics? UTIs. I guess kidney stones. Yeah, UTIs, <laughs> bladder disease. <laughs> Anything that has to do with the bladder, with the stomach, actually. So stomach ache. Uh, diarrhea uh, as well, uh, you know, was kind of under, fell under the purview of uh, the lynx uh, stone. Uh, and also, and that's the kind of color reasoning here by association, I said it was, you know, just it's described as a yellowish, uh, sort of deep yellowish stone as amber is. Uh, it also can target, therefore, all diseases that are associated with a yellowing of uh, the skin, uh, or the inside. So jaundice, uh, for example, is a prime candidate. Um, so the bulk of the powers of stones that makes them alive is, again, medicinal curative, uh, as in lithotherapy. Uh, there is an important sector that we would broadly define as magical and that's also kind of a little surprising when you come with preconceived ideas of, you know, a, a sharp separation between religion and magic. It's all present in um it's the kind of mineral lore that we read about. Uh so the um 
there are stones that make you even. It goes as far as stones that make you uh, invisible. There's a very nice uh, stone um, that is produced by the hyena. Uh, so another animal produced a uh, stone. It's a, described always as a kind of very sparkly, uh, shiny uh, stone, probably because in the bestiary, the hyena is described as uh, having eyes of a thousand colors that literally are able to kind of bewitch other animals uh, and sort of immobilize them and make them, turn them into uh, easy uh, prey. Well, it has... Um, uh, it has a sort of several uh, capacities, this uh, hyena stone, but one of which is uh, to give you prophetic abilities. That is to be able, if you own, if you're lucky enough to own a hyena stone, you can peer into the future. Now, this is pretty you know, unorthodox in Christian thinking, that in theory is only an ability that, um, you know, God has really and saints maybe. Uh, but it's it's sort of an interesting different presence uh, in uh, this um uh, in this body of knowledge. So medicinal, magical, practical, um, there are stones to protect you when you travel as a kind of travel insurance from bandits, uh, you know, all sorts of things. And then these environmental also um, interventions. We certainly recognize that minerals, you know, have powerful medical effects, right? Don't, don't, don't take any arsenic, right? Uh, and I, I wonder, like what, what you're describing is seems to be uh, categorically different, right? In the sense that the stone, first of all, the stone is itself an object rather than reduced to its sort of mineral components. But I kind of wonder, is the belief in mi- sort of mineral effectiveness parallel to the belief in like the lapidary uh, powers? Or are they, or does it replace that? Or do they parallel each other where there's a belief in mineral effectiveness and then there's a belief in lapidary effectiveness and they're just different? I think the latter, definitely. And there is an easy actually answer to that. It has a name. What you're um, sort of uh, pointing towards uh, is essentially the herbal tradition or what we call the herbal. So we have the three major genres, right? The bestiary, the lapidary, and the herbal that cover the mineral, vegetable, and uh, animal domain. But what we call, um, what we designate by herbal really is uh, what we would now would say uh, pharmaceutical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a very important, huge tradition uh, in them. In fact, you should make a podcast on fantastic herbals. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that tradition, which also has, you know, late antique, uh, actually Hellenistic and then late antique foundations, like all three genres, um, they're, they're much more concerned with what you're describing and I'm actually just uh, kind of writing up an article about some substances so for example one of the case studies that I'm looking at is um, white lead Uh, so uh, white lead and other mineral substances would be taken and pulverized and they're really used both externally and internally Uh, not a good idea very toxic (laughs) (laughs) but nonetheless used 
actually both, uh, you know, by doctors, by surgeons, uh, and by painters, which is kind of what interests uh, me, and in cosmetics also. Uh, so there you, you, you know, you have this sort of more uh, medical, or what you were saying, the mineral tradition and the mineral properties. So there are proper, there are stones that are astringent. There are stones that are purgative, that evacuate bad stuff from your body. But all of those, and we have um, recipes um, that actually come mostly from uh, the Arabic world uh, that are, you know, have a number of these ingredients, but it always requires to pulverize and then work the stones in one way or another. In the lapidary tradition, you don't. Uh, you know, you look at it and your link stone will, you know, get you <laughs> rid of jaundice or you know, <laughs> heal your diarrhea or whatever. Uh, so, you know, obviously we don't want to judge and evaluate in an ahistorical way. And, you know, did it work or not? You know, uh, likely not but um it's a co- what what interests me is that it's a very coherent system of thinking mm-hmm. right in which the mineral has this you know to us um uh, almost oversized uh, place i mean it's 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 just you know so different than what we think i have a question for you about you mentioned the the sort of three major traditions the the herbal, the bestiary, and the lapidary. Are there any stones that show up either in the herbal or the bestiary that seem to be conceived of as either vegetable or animal more than they are stone, and yet at the same time they're stone-like? The only one that I can think of right now, but it's a kind of hugely important case, is coral. Uh, So there was a lot of categorical confusion we would say about coral we Mm -hmm. of course know that it's an exoskeleton of an animal now so that's Mm -hmm. how we uh sort of um i can't remember now but there is there is a term for that uh biomatter maybe in Mm -hmm. in biomatter uh so the pearl actually is one that Mm -hmm. is you know but um in the in the lapidary tradition uh it they were actually well So the animal doesn't enter the picture, but there was a clear understanding that it sort of uh, intersects uh, between the vegetable and the mineral in the sense that usually the description is it is a plant while it lives in the ocean underwater. Mm. And as soon as you extract it, it will actually turn from white into red and in the process also harden into a stone. Interesting. Uh, so, you know, there was a, and in some authors, they kind of garbled the whole thing. So they thought of it as two different things. There was the coral plant and the coral stone, but that's, you know, basically just a faulty uh, transmission. What about this fantastic beast, maybe, in the bestiary tradition called the fire stone? I want to hear a little bit more about that. Thank you. Yeah, those are cool. <laughs> those are uh, very cool creatures. This is 
what their story is. So the fire stones, lapis igniferi, <laughs> always come in pair, uh, in pairs and gender pairs. And so as long as the male rock and its female match are kept separate, fine, nothing happens. But if by chance, and you know, you could wonder how would that happen, if they come close, uh, passion starts to sizzle and it sizzles so much that eventually they start to emit sparks. Uh, so, you know, they become incandescent, so much so that they end up torching everything inside themselves and around themselves. Uh, so it's a kind of uh, really sort of uh, very hot uh, sex uh, story between uh, the fire uh, stone, which again is kind of interesting when we think of you know medieval culture as being rather prudish or um, you know uh, kind of shying away from uh, explicit graphic material, and this is as graphic in some ways as it gets, except that it happens between these stones, but these stones that are at the same time uh, humans, and it's very interesting uh, to me to look. I've looked at a number of illustrations, for example. Um, So they are typically uh, illustrated in the bestiary. And what you have is, again, you can see the artist sort of wrestling with this, you know, are they stones or are they humans? So there's one tradition that is frankly on the mineral side. So they can appear as solid blocks, as egg-shaped sort of pebbles, rocks in various uh, sort of, you know, iterations. But then you have another tradition that is on the human pole that shows them maybe as two humans sort of usually naked, actually, in the act of embracing each other, uh, standing on a flame-emitting hillock. And the one that I really like, it's a kind of really teeny vignette, uh, you know, not an exceptionally uh, wonderful painting, but it's very cute. It shows Madame Firestone and Mr. Firestone as two humans in a bed, (laughs) cozy on their pillow, and again, you know, tightly embraced with flames sort of uh, lapping around uh, the bed uh, frame. So again, it's just, you know, we could dismiss it very easily as naive, Now, you and your listeners undoubtedly know that the bestiary is an allegorized genre since its inception. So there were, you know, moral readings and little didactic lessons sort of projected on animal behaviors. That, by the way, is emphatically not the case for the lapidary or the herbal. They do not have uh, allegorizations. So again, in the case of Firestones, you can imagine all you know, all too easily uh, what sort of warning against uh, lustful passion, uh, you know, uh, their story uh, lend themselves. But um, I think deeper down and at the physical uh, level, it's a really beautiful example of um, medieval culture and including visual culture with these artists, you know, trying one formula and another, uh, reflecting really on what it means to have uh, stones that are at the very simultaneously uh, uh, as much uh, human as they are mineral. So one of the things the bestiary uh, tradition will do that we've noticed is, in addition to the allegory, 
uh, it will have a kind of, you know, like a pseudo natural history, right? So that there's elements in there that seem as though they are, you know, giving the natural history of the, the beast. And I wonder uh, for the Firestone, you know, is, is there a natural history of the Firestone of, you know, a place where they are usually found or uh, any, any details other than the allegorizing part? So the bulk of the, their description is about their encounter and what happens, this passion that sizzles. Uh, I can't remember. I don't, the, um, the stones that are included in the bestiary tradition, they're about six or seven. Um, they are not necessarily localized geographically. The lapidary tends to do that a little bit more. One of the stones that the bestiary mentions is the diamond. Uh, it's called Adamas. Um, and there it is always uh, described as being found high on a mount or uh, on a mountain uh, top, essentially, uh, because the likeness uh, there is with Christ. And so it's a stone that shines, that sparkles, but that you have, you know, that takes time uh, to identify and to find. So hence the location um, the kind of remote uh, location. I don't believe that's the case, but, you know, I would have to check with the Firestone. I don't think we're given a location. Now, one of the things that, um, again, in our disenchanted modern scientific parlance, it's very easy to see what kind of rock uh, sort of hides behind the Firestone. Uh, that's pyrite. And in fact, the lapidary tend to call them pyrites. And pyrites is also known as fool's gold uh, because it has a kind of metallic, golden metallic, shiny surface. Uh, so, you know, again, the sparkliness, the attraction lend itself to that kind of um, mythopoetic uh, elaboration, to that little storytelling. Uh, but also pyrite has as its one of its physical characteristics, when you strike it with a metal, it emits sparks. Okay. Uh, so, you know, again, that's, but you see how that's kind of okay you know a stone that emits sparks well maybe it's exciting to observe but not so exciting as a story <laughs> and what medieval texts do is to mount this whole kind of narrative about these two fire stones and i just think it's a, it's a really it's a tribute to the physical the natural physical imagination um you know that uh that they had i wanted to ask you about the lodestone because when i think about you know the distinction between the the, the living and the non-living or particularly between animals and and even plants the sort of the mortal part of the soul in the old idea is that animals will have an animate soul which is responsible for sense and motion and of those things magnetic stones like the lodestone which can operate like a compass right if you float it on water it's going to turn itself towards the magnetic north pole did that was that seen as alive or was that even included in lapidaries or or not well, absolutely that's another best seller a stony bestseller, the lodestone the magnet uh right 
So that actually appears both in the, actually in all three genres. So you have the magnet uh, in the bestiary, you have it in the lapidary, and you have it in the herbal because, again, uh, you know, you can, uh, I guess, grind it. And it was a kind of, uh, you know, powerful ingredient just as uh, its uh, physical uh, properties. So no particularly imaginative story around uh, the magnet, I think, except that its attractive forces were a source of infinite wonderment. And it was really one of the chief mineral marvel. You find it uh, in many, many different uh, contexts. And what was particularly intriguing uh, to um, medieval observers, so as you rightly say, uh, no uh, soul whatsoever, so not even the three, you know, uh, the human soul, the vegetative soul, the uh, sensible soul, none of that, right? We were, that's not part of uh, stony creatures, but nonetheless, again, they have these forces. And in the case of magnetic forces, what is kind of matter of infinite wonder is how can an object and again a seemingly inert object attract something at a distance actually there was one story that kind of emerged that was the lore of the magnetic mountain for a very long time really throughout the middle ages so there was this assumption that in the indian ocean especially there were these scary underwater hidden concealed huge magnetic mountains and what it would do is that it would catch uh, ships unaware and essentially yank uh, the nail fittings from the ship you know and provoke a uh, shipwreck it seems that we've sort of taken the lid off an entirely new <laughs> area of, of investigation in inviting you to come aboard today, since I, I think we've encountered stones in the heads of dragons and toads, and but I don't think we've really even begun to dig into this um, as much as, as we could. There was one more stone that we mentioned before we before we started recording here, and I wondered if you could comment on this. You say it's not really much present in the European medieval tradition, but the bezoar, which we hear a lot about in the Renaissance. Yes, it is not included until really late in the medieval lapidary. It is not in the bestiary either. Um, it is a stone that is very much more present in the Arabic uh, tradition. So there you have a kind of difference, you know, a lot that is shared, but also some cultural differences. Uh, so it is only in the course of the 13th century that the Bezoar slowly starts to percolate into textual, Western textual reception. Um, and eventually, you know, what went under the name of Bezoar, which are concretions of ruminating animals, uh, became a very desirable collectible. And so we see it appear. I don't know when the first uh, Bezoar really is documented in uh, in a collection, but um, it definitely becomes a uh, must-have presence in Renaissance collecting. I think the Bezoar has also anti-toxic uh, property, detects uh, venom, or guards against uh, venom. The toadstone actually usually would work 
by starting to sweat when in the presence of uh, poisons. Mm-hmm. You had other things like what were called serpent's tongues, which we now know were fossilized shark uh, teeth um, and they still survive and sometimes I have a reproduction in my book it's a beautifully mounted piece uh, a little tree that is made from coral branches and from the tips you have dangling these uh, shark teeth uh, fossilized shark teeth but known as serpents tongues and those were very much appreciated in court uh, courtly milieus in court culture you would have them you know at the center of table because again uh, the understanding was that the that the stone, uh, the serpent's stone, was able to detect poison. So you would take one of those from the little tree and dip it into your drinks and food stuff, you know, to make sure that it wasn't contaminated. A lot easier to use than a unicorn horn, which we've also discussed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so thank you. This was really fascinating uh, today and, and uh, it's getting me thinking in all so many ways about that the living, non-living distinction, animality itself is, is called into question uh, with these fantastic gems. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh, so thank you very much. That was, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> cool. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. 